Good morning. It's good to see everybody. Sorry. There are a few announcements uh, for you today, and uh, figure out where I am here. Um, they're on the back of your bulletin. Encourage you to look there and see what's there. I think there is one change. The uh, young women's Bible study is not meeting this week. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Second change. That. Men's Bible study is breakfast at IHOP. Okay, so um, if you need a really good excuse to go to the men's Bible study, breakfast at IHOP, there you go. It's still at 6.30 in the morning, however, so just apologize up front for that. There are those of us who are not morning people. And uh, we had a great uh, Sunday school class today. Uh, for the uh, adults and our older uh, kids, Heidi Rist was here and uh, from India and shared with us of her uh, with us of her trip there and uh, and that was wonderful. I encourage you to get a chance to talk with her and uh, see how you can pray uh, for her and for the people there. And she's going to come back. She's promised to come back and do a class uh, just for our younger children. Elementary age, so uh, uh, we look forward uh, to that as well. Um, I think it's time to dismiss for Children's Church. I sort of forget that part, following Mrs. Pugh out there. So our younger children that will be going to Children's Church, you can head out. The rest of you will want to get out your uh, sermon outline that says the deity of Christ on it. Hopefully it looks something like that. And I'll tell you, uh, up front, I um, accidentally deleted a footnote, and I didn't realize it until after I printed all 80 of them. So it is in the sermon. It will be on the website, but uh, uh, some of the uh, stuff I used isn't in the insert. And I just realized this morning, looking over it, that uh, several sources uh, are missing. And uh, somehow when I did that, I just deleted them. Um, but uh, it is in the sermon, so when it gets posted to the website, they'll be there. So I don't want to deny uh, James Montgomery Boyce's due. <laughs> I somehow figure out how to do this comfortably. We're in John. We're going to be here for a while. Um, so I hope you really like John. The uh, And we're going to start in the beginning. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the word written before us and for the word living Christ. Father, we pray that as we begin this series in the Gospel of John, that you would draw us closer to Christ. We ask that you would do that for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the football season has started. That's good news for some and horror for others. Imagine with me uh, for a moment a football team playing every game on its home field. And since home teams win between 60 and 80% of their home games, this team would have a tremendous advantage. It would have winning seasons year after year after year. And from approximately A.D. 300 to the year roughly A.D. 1300, the church operated like the home team. They acted like they had home field advantage. The church owned the teams, chose the sides, made the rules, taught the refs, and always had the crowd behind it. At least it thought it did. And while it's not entirely true, because as soon as you broaden your perspective to include Asia and Africa, it's obviously not true. But even in Europe, there were uh, pagans and heresies behind every tree, which the church dealt with in incredibly compassionate ways, alternating with harsh persecutions that boggle the mind. But they thought they were the home team. And for the most part, so did everyone else. But that started to fall apart with the Reformation. It completely crumbled with the Enlightenment, was banned from the field in modernity, and is now a distant memory lost in postmodernism. And today, in the latter months of 2006, everything has changed. Today, we play on the opposing team's turf. Now, those who would just as soon have nothing to do with the church are the ones making the rules for our society. They're the ones who own the teams, make the rules, provide the refs, and the crowd is behind them. And they find the church authoritarian, Christians antagonistic, Christianity unbelievable, and Jesus Christ meaningless. Not sure? Does it sound a bit extreme? Consider there's a higher percentage of acting, active, professing Christians in Angola, West Africa, than there is here in America. There's a higher percentage of Christians in Korea than there is in Canada. There's a higher percentage of Christians in Fiji than in any country of Europe. The largest mission field in the Western Hemisphere is now the United States. And the darkest mission field, I believe, in the world is easily Western Europe. Even more, I believe, than the Muslim world, because at least they're willing to admit there's such a thing as religion. They just know they're on the other side. You don't even have that starting point in Europe. And so if the church 
is going to carry out its mission of telling people about the gospel of Christ. We have to know what we're up against and how the rules of the game are changing. We must know why. Why the church is a community and then be a community. We must know why Christians are loving and then be loving people. We must know why Christianity is believable and then act like we really believe it. And we must know why Jesus Christ is not only the most meaningful person who ever lived, we must know why he brings meaning to each one of our lives. And we must know why it is Jesus Christ who is the one who lives, reigns, and is coming again, as we just professed in our reading of the Nicene Creed. And we must be able to tell them in a way they can understand. And that's the purpose of the Gospel of John. The key verse and the theme uh, for this whole book are found in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's why I'm going to start preaching from the Gospel of John. And as I said before, I expect we're going to be here for a while. I expect to still be preaching on John when I'm 50, and I'm 48 now. John's been called God's love letter to the world. It contains some of the best loved and most remembered verses in all the Bible. It's probably been... Uh, the means by which more people have come to know Christ as Lord and Savior than any other portion of Scripture. But before we dive into the text, we need to look at a few things first, perspective and background and subject. And I've enclosed an insert, uh, the tan insert uh, for you, with an introduction dealing with things like uh, dates and how the book breaks down. And uh, that's basically so I don't have to cover all that stuff now. So you can read that uh, later. Um, it gives you some of the, you know, a little bit of the technical background of the book. But I want to start by looking at the issue of perspective. The Gospel of John presents a horizontal perspective as well as a vertical perspective. And so on the one hand... John emphasizes the horizontal perspective, a new creation dawning in history because of the coming of Jesus into the world. And this history extends all the way back to the first creation. It's consummated with the new creation, with the coming of Christ. And that's why John begins his gospel with the words, in the beginning. On the other hand, he focuses our attention on the vertical perspective of history, because real eternal life and knowledge of God is obtained by being born from above, as we'll see in John 3. And Jesus came down from above. His kingdom is not of this world. And uh, as we study the book of John, we have to keep these truths and keep these perspectives in mind. I think it's helpful to think of the book of John from the perspective of story. John's gospel could be understood as the story 
of Jesus Christ and how we either fit into that story or we do not fit into his story. And the story is filled with paradox and irony and a substantial amount of misunderstandings and misinterpretations. And ultimately, there's a hero who's resurrected to his proper place upon the completion of his journey for those that he loves. And by no means do I use the word story to indicate fictional story. Story is just used to capture the essence of what is God's revelation of the reality of Christ. Some men make up their own stories, their own fictional stories. Others, by the grace of God, submit to God's historically true story. You could look at at the Gospel of John from the perspective of a play, where chapter 1 is the prologue, perhaps with overture music. And then uh, chapters 2 through 12 form the content of Act 1. Chapters 13 through 20 are Act 2. And uh, the end, chapter 21, is sort of the epilogue. Another perspective would be a film. Chapter 1 is the opening title and the musical theme and the credits. Gives you the history prior to the story in the film. And then the uh, chapters 2 through 20 are all the various angles and the different shots the camera captures. And it's edited by John to focus every event, every sign, every saying to reveal Jesus as the author of the story. And then chapter 21 would be the closing credits, the grand musical score at the end. Because to understand this book, you need to get a sense of the big picture. That John is writing a story to all the world, to all the church, and to you, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And it's a story that only John could write. It's now A.D. 90, give or take a few years. He is the last of the disciples left alive. The community of the seven churches that he pastors, situated along a postal road, stands in awe of him. John the Elder, they call him. Elder much as a a description as it is a title. Because John's at least 80 years old, probably more. In AD 90, 40 was getting along. 60 was ancient. 80 is miraculous. And John's past 80. If you know something of John's life, he was a simple man from a simple place. But what happened to him was not at all simple. Or perhaps it was. He was a follower, a disciple, someone Jesus loved, someone he trusted with his own hands. He touched Jesus. His now tired old eyes had looked into the mystery of Jesus' fine intellectual face. And John's been asking himself all those years, what did it mean? What does he mean? And at a time in the history, of the, this time in the history of the church, things are starting to get confusing. People are questioning what Jesus said, what Jesus did, and who Jesus was. And there's only one apostle left. 
John. All the other apostles are gone. All the other key members of the first church in Jerusalem, gone. Jerusalem itself, gone. Destroyed by the Romans 20 years earlier. All the rest of the New Testament has been written. Except for Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the Gospel of John. Because so far there's nothing from John. And to stand in the presence of the last living disciple is to realize that he needed to commit to writing as much as he knew before his lips are silenced forever. And so he wrote because they wouldn't leave him alone until he did. And he wrote because he wouldn't leave him alone until he did. And he wrote because he missed the sound of Jesus' voice. So much sometimes he thought would break. Perhaps he wrote, you know, in the hope that through the words of maybe even just one of his sentences, he might hear again the familiar sound of his voice. Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been written and well circulated, and everyone knew by heart the stories they contained. John set out to fill in the gaps. He thoughtfully skipped some of the well-known stories so he could uh, put in stories that no one had ever heard. Stories that had never been written down. Stories that he'd been telling and preaching for more than 60 years. The stories came together by themes, as good sermons do. Light and darkness, wisdom and foolishness, the misunderstood Messiah. And writing them down and working through them again in his imagination was like being back on the road again with Jesus. Details came to his mind that he thought were long lost. Tired feet from long journeys. Fear of the Pharisees. The feeling of having his breath taken away by those luminous words of, the, of Jesus. He remembered how again and again the people had misunderstood Jesus' words and his works and how after he would make some of his most deeply spiritual pronouncements, the crowd would often completely miss the meaning. He would talk about living water and they would only see a well. He would speak of the bread from heaven and they'd want a meal. The essence of John's portrait of Jesus is found in its simplicity. Light, water, bread, seed. Jesus is revealed by John through the immediate and the tangible. Occasionally John would have to push himself back from the writing table to wipe away the tears brought on by the memories that forced him once again into the presence of the Galilean that he loved. And he longed for and he missed with all his heart. So here they are. The words, the thoughts, the feelings of the last living disciple. The last person left alive who walked with Jesus. Hear them well. Come sit at the feet of John the Elder. Listen to what he has to say about this Lord of his. This friend that he had leaned against at their last meal together and on whom he's been leaning ever since. The one John would have us all lean on. The one he writes to tell us is Christ the Lord. This is probably the most relational book of the Bible. John writes not of doctrine, 
but how Jesus related to people. He remembered the wedding where Jesus solved the wine problem and got the host off the hook. He thought of the blind beggar that nobody noticed except for Jesus. He pondered Jesus' tender teaching to the Samaritan woman and his tough encounter with a Pharisee at night. And with graphic detail, John takes us on a storybook journey through Jesus' encounters with people. And Jesus met all kinds of people. He dined with the rich and associated with outcasts. He had pity on the sinners. He helped the needy. At every level, at every station, in every caste, Jesus spoke the right words at the right time. He addressed people in such a manner the simple-minded could understand him, and the learned had to ponder what he said. Teaching with authority, that was new, and people came by the thousands to hear it. They were captivated by his words. According to John's gospel, Jesus didn't have to tell people they needed to repent. Instead, he engaged them in a dialogue that exposes their sins and shortcomings and mistaken thoughts. And when Jesus removes their masks, he speaks restoration instead of rebuke. He's the gentle shepherd who finds the lost sheep, even the one, and brings them back to the fold. He loves them, and they repent on their own. They could easily be the people in your life. They could have been your neighbors or relatives. The cranky old guy who lives around the corner, he's in John's gospel. That guy at church, this church, who still can't see God, Jesus ran into a few of those. The grief-stricken widow, the pregnant teen, your mother-in-law, you see them all in John's pages so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The student of John will find that each time he returns to this gospel, Christ will be a little bigger. Something like Lucy's experience with the lion Aslan, who's the Christ symbol in the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you remember the scene where she gazes to Aslan's face and he says, Welcome, child. Aslan, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one. Not because you are. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. I last preached through John 15. That was quite a while ago. Not quite 15 years. Maybe 14 years ago. And I was excited to get back. I took out my first sermon. I was like, this is terrible. <laughs> Can't use this. My hope as we work our way through the wonders of this book we'll find Christ bigger and bigger and bigger. And of course, we start in the beginning. Verse 1, Christ is the eternal word. The eternal word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning was the word. 
It's a different way to start a story. And what it means is there was never a time when Christ did not exist because the word was is in the Greek imperfect tense, which means nothing uh, other than it means he was continuing. In fact, the entire first verse bears that sense. You could possibly translate it. This wouldn't be considered a good translation, but it does get at the meaning. In the beginning was continuing the word. And the word was continuing with God, and the word was continually God. Or as one person very accurately but ungrammatically concluded, Jesus always was wasing. That's it, precisely. Jesus Christ is preexistent. He always was continuing. If you're like me, when you start thinking about that, pondering that, you get a headache. You know, your minds look backward until time disappears and thought collapses, mostly in exhaustion. But that happens if you're going to think thoughts on the greatness of Christ. And next, the apostle adds, and the word was with God. Literally, the word was continually toward God. Father and son were continually face to face. The preposition with bears the idea of being near along with a sense of moving towards God. That is to say, there's always existed the deepest equality and intimacy in the Trinity. And again, our minds just sort of are staggered and, and boggled as we think of Jesus having always been, uh, always having continued without beginning, without end, in perfect relationship with the Father. And moreover, the final phrase says, and the word was God. The exact meaning is that the word was God in essence and character. He was God in every way, although he was a separate person from God the Father. The phrase perfectly preserves Jesus' separate identity while also stating that he is God. This is his continuing identity from all eternity. He was God constantly. This simple sentence of verse 1 is the most profound theological statement in all of Scripture. That's debatable, but it sounds pretty good to put it in here. Jesus was always existing from all eternity as God in perfect fellowship with God the Father. And God's glory dwells with man in the person of Jesus Christ. But this was something that no one in their wildest imagination could have fathomed until God made it clear in the life and preaching of Christ. Notice in verse 1, John says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was the Word with God and was God. And he's stressing Jesus' godness. I'm not sure that's actually a word. Or his deity or his divinity. By using this phrase, calling him the Word. Now to the Greeks, word or logos meant the rational principle or reason or logic that held all of life and the cosmos together. Uh, Logos is the force that kept everything from turning chaotic when somebody sneezed. To the Hebrews, the word is devar, D-E-B-A-R. It's actually spelled in Hebrew, but that would be the English translation. And it communicates God's divine speaking 
It's when God speaks in the creation and it comes to pass. Remember Genesis 1, the divine fiat that commands life and light, and it goes out into nothing, and then light and life comes forth. Devar means both word and deed. In the Old Testament, words accomplished something. Thus God spoke the devarim of creation, let there be light, and the words made the darkness roll back like a scroll. In the Old Testament, what God says, God does. It also communicates the word spoken by the prophets that would not go forth and return empty or void. It burned within the heart of the prophets. See that in Isaiah 55. So shall my word, spoken word, written word, living word, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth that shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purposed and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's written word, the scriptures, does that. And God's living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, does that. He is the eternal word. John also wants us to know that Christ is the creator of all. That's the next blank in there. Christ is the creator of all. He's the creator of the universe. says all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And that's the consistent witness of the New Testament. Colossians 1 says, For by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. Hebrews 1, through him also he created the world. Revelation 4, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. We can trust such a God with anything, with everything. He is our creator. Do you trust him? Have you entrusted your life to him? Considering the greatness of Christ, nothing else makes sense. And then John wants us to see that Christ is the revelation of God. The revelation of God, verses 4 and 5. This metaphor of Christ as light stresses the revelation and the rejection of his love as it came into the world. In clearest terms, Christ is described as light. Verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The emphasis here is on Christ being the spiritual, life-giving light that goes out into the world. The thought of our Lord being spiritual light gives us an insight into his loving attempt to reach the world. Where light goes, darkness is dispelled, revealing the true nature of life. No place with the slightest um, crack in it can withhold its presence, the light shines in the darkness. Literally, this means it shines continually in the darkness, meaning that Christ is continually bombarding every corner of the darkest places of the world, of the darkest places of our hearts, through the work of his Holy Spirit. in nature, in our consciences, through the scriptures. And whether you are with or without Christ, meditate upon Christ being light. And you'll better understand how much he loves you. But how was his loving light received? 
Many rejected the light. Verse 5, and the darkness has not overcome it. But it tries. The light is met with tremendous resistance. Think of it. The one who said, let there be light. The one whose love constrained him to shine his saving light through creation and conscience. The one who mercifully sheathed his life in a human body so that he could bring light to men. The one who set aside a special people for himself to be a light to the nations is rejected. And yet today he is still the light and he continues to pry his way into hostile hearts. And sometimes those hostile hearts are so uncomfortably, uncomfortably close. John tells us that God has spoken a powerful word of recreation, of salvation. And so the incarnation happens, a word spoken and done, pronounced in syllables of flesh. This Logos, this Devar, this Word of God became flesh. And to use Paul's expression uh, elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, this would have been foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. This was the unbelievable. But it was God coming to dwell with men in glory in a way that was so very unexpected. And this introduction to John tells of the speaking of that Word. The rest of the book tells of the deeds of the one who is the living word. For John, the truth of this will be demonstrated in Jesus' life. What Jesus says will always be reflected in what Jesus does, and vice versa. He will do something like open the eyes of the blind and then speak the deep truth that he is the light of the world. Jesus will tell his sorrowing friends that he is the resurrection and the life. And that word will be validated as Lazarus comes hobbling out of the tomb. Jesus feeds 5,000 and then tells us that he is the bread of life. What he says is always validated, illustrated, and fulfilled in what he does. For he is the word and deed of the Father. When he speaks of being the light, the darkness is always there. When he speaks of being life, you can be sure a dead man is nearby. When he speaks of being wisdom, the foolish are close at hand. And there are days when we are the ones in darkness, when we are the ones who are foolish, when we are the ones who are dead. And we need words of life and light, and wisdom. Because those who are most profoundly aware of their own sin and need, and who in consequence most deeply feel the wonders of the grace of God that has reached out and saved them, even them, are those most likely to talk about themselves as the objects of God's love in Christ Jesus. Christ wants us to grow into his disciples and move away, to grow away from our sin and foolishness. And it is because we are the beloved, the one so loved by him, that he will change and transform us by grace alone. John saw himself as the son of thunder who would become the apostle of love. 
His response isn't arrogance. It's brokenness transformed by amazement. He's simply overwhelmed by Jesus' love for him in the midst of his sin. And we need to be overwhelmed by Jesus' love for us in the midst of our sin. Shallow understanding of how much we are loved will make us weak witnesses for Christ. We need to believe not just that the gospel is true, but that it is true for us. That is what will make us passionate believers who've been transformed by the love of Christ. And it will then have that same overflowing love going from us to our families, to our neighbors, to our bosses, to our students, even to those nosy people who sit near us at church. Simply put, John was aware of how great Christ was, the light he brought, the life he had for John. Are you really aware of how great Christ is, the light he brings, and the love he has for you? Perhaps we should pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, we think we know Jesus. We think we know what he's all about. We've got it all figured out. Father, help us to become students of John the Elder. Help us to really listen to what he has to say. Help us to see the stories to put ourselves in the story, to watch Jesus talk with people. Help us be overwhelmed by the amazing love he has for the unlovable. Help us realize that we're in that unlovable group and that some of that amazing love is directed to each one of us. Heavenly Father, we can be so arrogant in our knowledge, so self-assured in our own abilities. That there's not much room for Jesus to change us. I pray that we would hear your word, that we would read it, study it, ponder it, so that we might be different people. People the world notices as those who follow Christ. 
Father, we're too busy to do that on our own. We're too preoccupied with life. So I pray this morning that your spirit would work powerfully in us. Let the gospel of Christ would become real in each one of our hearts. I ask that you would do that for us. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen. I think we're going to have a song and an offering now, and someone can tell the folks in Children's Church that they can start coming on back in.